Since 2017, the Italian Wine Podcast has exploded and expects to hit 6 million listens by the end of July 2023. We're celebrating this success by recognizing those who have shared the journey with us and giving them the opportunity to contribute to the ongoing success of the shows. By buying a paper copy of the Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0 or making a donation to help the ongoing running costs, members of the international Italian wine community will be given the chance to nominate future guests and even enter a prize draw to have lunch with Stevie Kim and Professor Attilio Scienza. To find out more, visit us at italianwinepodcast.com. Chin chin! Welcome to Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Listen in as we journey to some of Italy's most beautiful places in the company of those who know them best, the families who grow grapes and make fabulous wines. Through their stories, we will learn not just about their wines, but also about their ways of life, the local and regional foods and specialities that pair naturally with their wines, and the most beautiful places to visit. We have a wonderful journey of discovery ahead of us, and I hope you will join me. Welcome to Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome a good friend and fellow member of the Circle of Wine Writers, who is a real specialist and expert in Italian wine, both as a wine writer and communicator, as well as as a wine consultant, Michelle Shaw. Michelle, thanks so much for being my guest today. How are you? I'm fine, Mark, and it's, um, it's lovely to hear you and honored to be here with you. So, um, yes, beautiful day. I'm actually in Sweden, not in my beloved Italy today. Well, I was going to ask you about that. I was imagining you in this baking hot weather that Italy has been suffering from. But in fact, you're in a beautiful spot where it's a little bit cooler. That's right. That's right. You know, as uh, Italy, Italy is most enjoyable um, I would say outside um, the you know hottest months up until June and then you know from September onwards, um, July and August can be quite fearsome in heat and also a lot of people. Everybody wants to come and visit Italy. Yes, of course. Now, have you noticed as well over the years that this heat and and you know the the, the effects of climate change are are really impacting on the way you can live and enjoy life in Italy apart from the impact on wine growers. Most definitely, yes. I mean, I don't think it's that much fun, really, um, you know, for people coming from the Northern Hemisphere, you know, into the, you know, heat and then not being used to it and um, having to cope. And, you know, when you're a tourist, you want to go out, you want to explore everything, you want to try everything, you want to eat well, you know, so you want to eat plentifully. <laughs> and all this in the heat is... Is, is quite a challenge, really. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, it, it, it can be quite trying. I'm looking at pictures of people, you know, tourists in Rome, for example, and it just looks too hot this year. Well, you're gonna have, you have to go and jump into that fountain down there. <laughs> yes, I think a lot of people are in that fountain. <laughs> yes, like La Dolce Vita. Yes. And, um, yes, I mean, in the north, there's been a lot of hailstorms, serious ones, you know, with... with um, hail as big as tennis balls yeah i've seen pictures of that and also i know uh that um Laika and stevie and the team in verona have they've been saying that the hail has just been frightening and of yeah. course it can cause such damage to vineyards in a split minute or two it can strip them of everything yeah. so it's very very worrying 
Absolutely. Mm. Michelle, tell me uh, and share with our listeners a little bit about your background, um, where you, you're from and how you ended up in Italy. Well, um, yeah, I was born in the UK um, and um, my parents um, were neither really British nor uh, nor Italian. They were a mixture of uh, German, Czech, Austrian. But we were living in in UK and um, when I was uh, six, we, we moved out to Italy. I was absolutely amazed, you know, <laughs> a six-year-old coming out to Italy. I think my first experience was eating an ice cream that same day I arrived. And I don't think I'll ever forget that experience. But then anyway, I went back to, uh, I went back to England for boarding school and I came back to Italy for my holidays. And then at the age of about 17, 18, I, I moved to South Africa with my parents and I stayed there a couple of years uh, in Cape Town. And then I moved back to Italy, back to Liguria, which is where um, we had been living. And um, so I moved back there to the area of Santa Margherita Portofino and, um, and stayed there until, until I decided to move to Rome, um, which, um, where I spent 11 years. And by that time, I was uh, working as a, a consultant to an NGO company uh, based in Rome, an English company called AgriSystems. And we serviced um, the uh, UN organizations such as um, FAO, WFP, EFAD. Um, so I was really doing their PR work within those um, international agencies. So I had no actually... Um, I had no thoughts about uh, going into wine. That was uh, that came into a second, a second sort of section of my life. Well, what was the Damascene moment? What made you really want to dedicate your your working life to wine? You know, growing up in Italy, or, or, or I can say partly growing up in Italy, um, you're sort of open to this wonderful culture of uh, food and wine which is definitely a culture. I mean, sitting around the table um, and even at our house, uh, my, my parents were, were very, um, they were very keen on um, talking about, you know, the food and the wine that um, we had at the table. And so it, it made a great impression on me how important this part of culture or, how, you know, how enjoyable this all was and how much... Um, you know, it gave us to thought about, think about. They always gave me a very small glass of wine, which, of course, at that age, you know, growing up, I wasn't that, um, you know, I didn't really appreciate it. Mind you, I did appreciate, I I was always given a, a glass of Lambrusco Amabile uh, when, I, when they were going out and I was left with the babysitter. That was like my, you know, um, be good prize. A uh, glass of Lambrusca Amabile and roast chicken, and you know I was guaranteed to behave myself. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> wow, how wonderful! What a good idea. That was in replace of the gelato that you first sampled. Yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> Those were my initiations. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. So, so gradually, you you then began to work in the world of wine. Well, yes. I mean, I I, um, I I worked in Rome until I was about forty-ish, and then I actually then I decided to take some time off, and I took a, a, a university degree with Open University in History of Art, 
concentrated on the sort of art of the Renaissance. And then uh, by sort of fortuitous chance, I, I, I socially met with uh, James Suckling, who at the time was the um, European chief um, editor of Wine Spectator. And um, because he was living uh, just sort of across the valley from where we were living in, in, in Tuscany. And he had really just moved to Italy and was looking to set up his office and was looking to uh, find, you know, somebody who could help him set up tastings and um, maybe do some sort of um, writing for the Wine Spectator um, website on Italian news. And and so, yes, I said, yeah, that sounds great. You know, I mean, I was looking to do something and I said, well, wow, that's that's fantastic. I mean, that's really, you know, I'd love to do that because, I mean, I, at that stage, I loved wine and, um, you know, used to go when I was living in Rome. I came very often up to, to Tuscany or to Piedmont to buy wine in a damigiana because that I'm talking about a long time ago about 40 years ago, and I would go to some producers who now, you know, would definitely not send, sell their wine in a damigiana, which is a demijohn. Of course. And then I would bottle it at home. Siphoning it out yourself then. Right. That would be, you know, that would be my house wine. Yes, I can remember doing that myself when we lived in Tuscany and sealing it with olio enologico, not even a crown color. That's right. Then you have to sort of siphon that out and <laughs> from the damigiana and then you... Yeah, by force of gravity, you fill up the bottles. And then, you know, I had my own sort of, I didn't cork it. I had a crown cork because, you know, it was going to go in six months. So you didn't need to have proper cork on it. Those are the things that you, you you know, that's that's how I, you know, learned to um, discover in a very small way um, wine and wineries and wine growers. And and ever since then, it's um, it's kind of like expanded and, and it's really my passion you know, has been my passion for the last 20 years. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting, Michelle, because you're really talking about living through this transition as Italian wine, you know, has moved from that, you know, when you would go to restaurants and the choice would be Bianco Rosso. You know, there wasn't, there weren't, buy, you weren't buying yeah. labels necessarily and, and, and going to the producers and buying 54 liters of, a, you know, a demijohn and, and, and bottling that at home, to now how Italian wine, this renaissance of Italian wine, which you will have lived through and which you are part of now, uh, you know, where we see wines, both simple wines and, and exalted wines, really able to reach international markets, national markets, and so much excitement and interest. So it's an, an exciting period you've lived through and are still very much a part of. I'd say very much so. When you talk about that renaissance, I definitely lived it. I mean, I think I sort of stepped in as it was sort of starting. And, you know, Italian wines weren't weren't as widely exported as they are today. And every producer I met when I was working for the publications I was working for, from Wine Spectator to Decanter and then um, wine Business International, they all asked me, one of their first questions or last questions were, <laughs> how can I export my wines? Can you help me to export my wines? So this, you know, this was something that um, was at the core of their uh, need. 
because you know it's great to make wine but at the end of the day you have to sell your wine you have to make you know ends meet so this was something that um hadn't developed or was was in the developing stages let me say um and wasn't as well developed um, as it is obviously today. Even today, Michelle, you're still getting asked that same question, I'm sure. Oh, yes, yeah. I mean, you know, I have my own sort of uh, from from this, um, from, you know, starting to write about wine, uh, I very, you know, soon found that, um, you know, it, it was necessary to assist the producers. And then I started organizing um, B2B events. I, I started also collaborating with a number of consortios around Italy. Some of them I still have as my clients and helping them plan events for international press, for international importers to be able to, you know, help them expand uh, the, their exports to international markets. Sure. Now, what's interesting for me out of this, Michelle, is that you began as a communicator. You began as a writer working for the Wine Spectator. And communication really lies at the heart of what you're doing as much as sales, really, um, because Italian wines have such wonderful stories. And that is um, one of their great strengths. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, you've got uh, you've got 20 regions in Italy and each region obviously offers um, a unique uh, set of um, varieties um, in, in, you know, in great varieties. And you've got this, um, you know, local cuisine that, that uh, matches seamlessly to, to their wines. Um, and, you know, all this is all part of their culture and their tradition um, and it's all integrated, you know, as you as you go from the length of Italy, from the, from the from the north to the south, you can see, you know, how how everything um, changes. Um, the grape varieties, the foods, of course, there are basic basic ingredients at the base of many of the recipes, but how each and every um, uh, region does does things differently. And, you know, ex the Italians are extremely, what can I say, um, um, I wouldn't say nationalistic, but, you know, each region um, is, is very individualistic. And uh, within each region, I remember I, I was brought up in Liguria. So uh, pesto is a big, the big dish of uh, Liguria. And from village to village, honestly, they could each make a different type of pesto or say, no, mine's better because I do this. And the other one would say, no, well, I do this. And, you know, you could have about 30 or 40 different variations of pesto within that thin strip of Liguria. And even using more or less the same ingredients. Absolutely. I mean, they are so creative. Do you have your own special way of making pesto still? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> Should I tell you? It's my secret. Yes, I'd like to know that secret. <laughs> well, I learned I learned it from when I was living in Liguria. I spent my summer months as um, working working on a beautiful Camper and Nicholson sailing boat. Oh, how wonderful! Yeah, it was absolutely, and and so I was the sort of dog's body. What do you say? The bottle washer. You know, I'd put 
do do the sort of cabins, I go out shopping and assist everybody else. And my my favorite my favorite uh, memories, um, and I had a great um, relationship with the with a chef, a wonderful man who could cook anything and everything. I mean, I'd wake up in the mornings and I'd wake up to to the the smell of focaccia al formaggio, focaccia alle cipolla, pizza. You know, it was all wafting up. Wow, wonderful. Italian Wine Podcast. If you think you love wine as much as we do, then give us a like and a follow anywhere you get your pods. Mm, I could just smell that at six o'clock in the morning as he was baking that. And he taught me, he taught me how to make pesto. And um, so, of course, you, you, need, uh, you need your garlic, you need your pine nuts, uh, you need your basilico. And, um, of course, the, the Ligurian basilico is different from the Tuscan basilico because the leaves are smaller on the Ligurian and, and slightly more delicate. More pungent in flavor? No, the Tuscan ones, in a way, are more pungent. Uh-huh. They're bigger and more pungent. And then, you know, you, you have your olive oil and you, you blend all this together. Um, if you're going to eat it straight away, you can also blend in some pecorino romano. But he used uh, parmigiano. He didn't use the, what most recipes say. He, he used parmigiano. And uh, he would also um, blend in a little bit of um, cream cheese, just 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 to make it sort of a little smoother. Oh, that must be a secret ingredient. It, it was. I mean, it would come out, you know, a, a sort of a lightish lime kind of um, green, and um, and then of course when you cook your pasta, um, as the pasta comes to its cooking point, you take a bit of little bit of water from the um, saucepan cooking the, the the pasta, and you put that into your pesto to dilute it a bit because if you dilute it with olive oil, it's just too rich. So you need to dilute it with a bit of water. Ah, and I've forgotten. At the same time as you cook your pasta, you put in some green, some some green beans, fresh green beans, and some uh, potatoes, peeled potatoes, cut up, so that when you take the pasta out, the beans and the potatoes are cooked at the same time, and all that is mixed in to your pasta al pesto. Wow, that sounds absolutely fabulous. You've made me very hungry. Well, you just have to come and visit me one day. We can have a a plate of pasta al pesto together. Well, you're on. I'll definitely do that. Michelle, another project I know you're passionate about, um, which I'd like to touch on, is the Old Vines Project. You're an ambassador for Italy because Italy as a country is really fortunate to still have an absolute wealth of incredible old vines, some pre-philosopher. Tell us a little bit about old vines, why they're important. Well, I mean, they're, they're important. They're a symbolism of heritage, really. Also, the genetic material, um, these um, ancient varieties are often forgotten you know, the old vineyards. And so, you know, it's very important, I think, as a cultural and a heritage um, and also of genetic value. We can learn so much to save them. And, uh, you know, they teach us so much about how vines can adopt to the changing climate, as well as obviously being, I think, uh, very often um, so 
so rich in 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 savor i mean they 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 you know they can they can give out some absolutely spectacular spectacular wines they as they say in it, in italy hanno una marcia in più they have an extra gear it's um it's a pity to see um you know these these wonderful old vines uh, just being sort of grubbed up and planted with with new vines which which would take you know years and years to get to the expression uh level of expression balance and harmony that these vines can give us i remember going when i was in south africa i went to see the the old vine project rosa's um project there and um you know talking about the old vines as they were you know looking after old pensioners that um you know they need to be properly pruned they need to you know they and they you know if you look after them properly they will give you uh, a wonderful product they're beautiful these old gnarled vines that are in some cases up to a century old and as you say they can produce wines with a concentration and complexity of flavors that you simply don't get i guess the downside why producers do want to grub them up is as they get old they get the, the, the quality may increase but the quantity can uh, be quite minuscule that's right Well, you, you, you sort of hit the nail on the head. Give us just a few examples, Michelle, of some old vine wines, Italian wines that you think are particularly exciting. Well, um, you know, in the last few months uh, since I've been looking, you know, because what I, I do is I um, spread the word and I look for, for new members um, within Italy. And, of course, there are areas uh, like on, on Etna uh, where you have a lot of ancient vines um in um in Sardinia in the areas of Ma- Mamoyada um but you know you you can find these wonderful old vines um in, in many parts of Italy and um you know I love well I I love the the wines of Etna so for me it was great that one of my favorite producers uh Ivigneri um Salvaforti Uh, who also manages i custodi dell'Etna he was the one of the first to become a um, a member of the OVC and you know i think he has some century old vines and they're beautiful yes i've seen those at his palmento up up high up on um they are quite stunning and of course there's even a um often these old vines are trained in traditional ways that have been abandoned elsewhere. Absolutely. Here you've got the Alberello, yeah. uh, which is bush train vines. And then a, another uh, absolutely amazing uh, vineyard is the one um, of Feudi di San Gregorio, Aglianico. Oh, yes, in Urpinia. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, these these vines are... Like a like a pergola. I mean, they're they're so tall. I mean, makes. I had a photograph taken of me standing by one of these vines. I look like a dwarf. I mean, they are really beautiful. I mean, they they also are over a hundred years old, and um, you know they produce an absolutely outstanding bottle of I think it's called Serpico. In fact, I had a bottle of um Ifudi wine just last night, the uh, Piano di Monte Vergine, yeah. Tarazi that was just absolutely stunning. Yeah. It's the wine that's being sent to the International Space Station. Wow. You've either got to have the financial possibility sometimes to, you know, to to keep these vines and then of course 
the creativity also to make a storytelling out of it. And it can be a wonderful storytelling for your product, uh, for your winery. But I do understand that, you know, there are smaller uh, wineries that may uh, not be or may not have the possibility of being so passionate about a vine. And this gets taken up. But, you know, rarely have I actually encountered that. I mean, because even the small vineyards, they're, they're, there's, um, there's a very, very small producer up in Trentino, um, El Zeremia. I mean, I don't know, he's got about a couple of hectares of vines. And these vines, these old vines, which are over 100 years old, have been passed down through the family. They have a, well, in, in their family, it's, it's a tradition that the oldest son is supposed to take over this vineyard you know, so so um, it's something that um, whoever you know the the ancestors who who plant, planted the vines wanted them to continue in the history and the story of the family, and I think a lot of uh, these producers, you know, do realize, you know, that they have something special, and you know, if they can, they should, you know, they should sort of honor this. Absolutely, absolutely. What's coming through in our conversation, Michelle, is really how you entered the world of wine through um, an appreciation that in Italy it connects so much. It connects it connects history, culture, food, place, where you are, the regions, the localities, and you know, with these old vines that really connect down through the generations, and all of that comes together in the story of Italian wine and, and, and the producers that you're excited to meet and, and represent. Uh, and so I, I really like that approach you've taken to what you do and what you love doing. Thank you, Mark. Well, you know, I mean, I like to look at everything 360 degrees. So I think, you know, you can't, um, you can't ignore one side of, you know, which is the more sort of um, practical pragmatic, uh, financial side. Of course. And the more, you know, romantic, creative, passionate side. I think you have to look at both things together. And I think that's what I've tried to do, you know, in my small, short history of, of um, being involved in the Italian wine trade into to help producers in every way I can. Um so whether it's from the commercial side in helping them find importers to writing about them and expressing my own passion, uh, hopefully that comes through when I do write in my writings. And, and you know, having the privilege of walking through these vineyards, talking to these farmers and, and um, wine growers and, you know, sitting at their table and, and sharing a glass of wine with them, you know, even with the simplest of foods, because you know, Italy is based on cucina povera, and that's the sort of simple food. I mean, those are the best tastes and expressions you can hope to get. Yes, absolutely. And they, and they just, as you say, are so intimately connected with the wines and with the people that make them. Michelle, it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you here, uh, talking today, but I would much rather be sitting up in Sweden sharing a glass of Italian wine with you or in your home in Tuscany. Uh, but I hope that we will meet up again soon. 
Absolutely, Mark. Thank you very much. We still have to have that pasta al pesto together now. Oh, yes, I can't wait. I'm going to try those secret tips myself when I next make it. Thank you, Michelle, and I hope you have a great day and a great summer. Thank you, Mark. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Wine, Food, and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe right here or wherever you get your pods. Likewise, you can visit us at italianwinepodcast.com. Until next time, chin chin.